Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Adorima's Bulletin. On this episode, I speak with Aaron Sanders, who is the director of the Office of Worship for the Diocese of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he recently wrote this article for Adoramus titled, Presence of Mind and Body, What Are the Necessary Moral and Physical Criteria for True Participation in the Liturgy? He covers a lot of topics, whether you're attending a a canonization mass in Rome or trying to figure out how to do liturgies during a pandemic. It's a wonderful article, and I had a great conversation with him. So without further ado, another Adoramus interview. Okay, Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Aaron, you're the uh, director of the Office of Worship for the Diocese of Grand Rapids in Michigan, and uh, you wrote this uh, amazing article for Adoramus Bulletin titled Presence of Mind and Body, What are the Necessary Moral and Physical Criteria for the True Participation in the Liturgy? And I mentioned to you this before that this is very nerdy, and I absolutely love that. And a lot of times when we talk about the nature of this topic, we're trying to figure out uh, the, low, the lowest common denominator, you know, uh, what, at what point do I need to be at mass for it to be efficacious for me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Can I arrive mm-hmm. after the gospel and all that stuff? But, you know, the roots of those, that curiosity, I think as long as you're not overly scrupulous or, you know, overly lazy, <laughs> I think there's a good nature of curiosity there. And I think especially you mentioned the article with some of the way liturgies happen, like you, you mentioned that you went to the beatification of um, St. Teresa and, or, you know, and all the liturgies that were happening during the pandemic and still are happening in very unique ways. I think it's important to maybe touch base with some of the things that we've learned as a church, but then some things that are unique to the, to the pandemic. So um, I, I want to start with uh, my first question is what, what, uh, what made you think about this topic and, and writing an article like this? Well, I mean, I suppose uh, the, uh, the really first seed in my mind was the fact that I'm in a diocesan office for worship. And so I, I had to, uh, consider a lot of these questions and have conversations with my bishop as he was making his decisions uh, for his flock throughout the course of the pandemic. But uh, really, as um, as I was trying to wrap my own head around this topic more completely, I realized that the questions of pandemic worship were actually just playing right into broader questions of pre-pandemic practice. You know, I started out the article with my experience at uh, Papal Mega Mass. That's not something that people had to adjust because there was a, a virus circulating. That's just sort of one of the realities of modern worship. And so these questions had already been sort of in the back of my head and uh COVID-19 and the ways in which we were forced to adapt to that just uh, were the stimulus to finally dive in and see what uh, the church had said, uh, at least, you know, in a related way to these uh, questions that had arisen. And and this is not the first pandemic the world has seen either. And so certainly there were um, uh, guidelines for past pandemics and past issues. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the uniqueness that you kind of tag in this article pertains more so to the technology that's available and some of the things Mm -hmm. that we're doing with some of that rather than the general principles 
of, you know, proximity, you know, mind and body, right? Is that what I'm getting? Right, because most of those principles that uh, I searched out in these old manuals of moral theology were principles that were developed well before we had even, uh, you know, microphones and radio to carry things. So uh, the, they were they were addressing a world that was in a certain sense much more necessarily localized in its forms of worship we just couldn't do the broadcast that we can now but when you get to the very tail end of the books that i was consulting now we're into the the 50s the 60s and and they are starting to speak to these issues but even then uh i don't think uh, any of the authors writing at that point in the middle of the 20th century would have imagined a day when anyone with a smartphone could live stream a liturgy to the whole world. Mm-hmm. And and there's nuance there too, right? So if you're doing a live broadcast, like when Pope Francis was elected, he gave a blessing to the entire world mm-hmm. through TV and radio, and I believe a, a plenary indulgence as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's certainly possible. But at the same time, uh, I cannot call a priest on the phone and do a proper uh, rite of reconciliation, right? So there are some nuances and some limitations there. So uh, first thing, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, body and mind, right? So those things are very important. So I want to talk about those two things and how they relate and correspond to each other. Is one more important than the other? And how do they correlate in this process so when, you're, when you're trying to figure these things out? Well, ultimately, when we talk about participation in the church's liturgy, um, we we have a, a fair amount developed now on that from, uh, we'll say, Pius X re- reviving this call for full conscious and active participation, but that developing through the encyclicals of subsequent popes, Second Vatican Council, um, there's a, a clear stream within that teaching saying that interior participation is primary uh, because it's that union in soul with the action that that really grounds and gives meaning to everything else that we're doing with the rest of the person, our our bodily existence. Um, And yet, when it comes to asking these questions now, as we're looking specifically at large gatherings or pandemic adjusted liturgies, we find that, uh, you know, this, this primary interior reality is in fact highly conditioned by whether we are bodily present, uh, that it's not simply a matter of, well, I listen to a liturgy that is happening somewhere and I express the right sentiments in my soul and therefore I've participated. Um, I did flag uh, the Orbi at Orbi blessing. You know, you mentioned when Pope Francis was first elected, uh, addressed the world. We have these times when, when we do think that the level of spiritual union that we can get remotely following along with the broadcast is enough to have done the job for that specific uh, spiritual goal. Uh, you know, I, I did something that was spiritually edifying by tuning into the Pope's blessing. I, I joined myself in spirit the best I could. And because of that, the Pope is going to open up the church's treasury of merit, uh, so that, uh, the graces that flow from that, the remission of temporal punishment due to sin are open to me. Great. 
that's one thing. Is mass the same thing, or is participation in mass what the church is calling us to do there, Sunday after Sunday, holy after holy day? Is that the same type of experience, or am I being called to an even more robust connection with the church's worship? And uh, I think we can see from uh, the traditional sources that, that I cited in my article that we are, in fact, being called to something more robust, more uh, more fully embracing the totality of who we are as these composite creatures of body and soul. So one of the things I, I always notice with, you know, sacramental theology and, and is this tension between, um, you know, being, you know, nuanced or, or rather having like a recipe, you know, like the, the rubrics, you know, here's the recipe or you, you, you go into the article talking about how many paces you can be away from, you know, the rest of the congregation, right? So the church is, is constantly fighting this, uh, this structure versus the, the intent of the intellect, right? So how, how do we balance that as, as, people as Catholics, how do we balance that in our hearts so that, again, we're not overly scrupulous because there's a lot of dangers there, but at the same time, we're, we're not just kind of being apathetic about things. How do we balance that in our mind? Well, I think the key is to take categories that were, in a sense, designed to mark out a bare minimum for us but to use them in such a way that they're pointing us towards an ideal, uh, pointing us towards the maximum. So uh, really a lot of the ways in which the moral theology manuals were discussing participation in mass was precisely to say, we do think this is the most you could get away with without sinning or without sinning mortally, really. That, that's a lot of uh, the questions about, well, can I get there up until the gospel? Uh, the manualists were not saying, yes, you can do that and fulfill your obligation if you just get, by the, get there by the gospel. They were saying, well, yeah, you will have failed in your obligation, but it wasn't a mortal sin. So, <laughs> you know, you're good enough in that sense. Um, but we, we can take these knowing that they had a specific task, sort, sort of laying out lines for confessors to use in counseling people and take those, flip them on their heads and say, well, uh, yes, those, those tell me the sort of floor of what I should absolutely not fall beneath, but, but what markers are in there that point me towards a do this, not that, uh, in terms of if, if the decisions that these theologians are coming to are based on sort of fundamental principles of what is going to enable me to enter into the liturgy and to participate the way church wants. Um, how can I use that to guide me? Say, uh, I'll tell you, I've spent a lot of time pacing around behind the back pew or in the narthex with a toddler. Uh, well, when I know that I have to go to the back, what's my best way to go about going to the back in a way that's going to try to remain the most connected to the, the liturgy in which I'm still trying to participate. Uh, you know, one thing that I try to do in writing this article, addressing some pandemic specific topics was to, you know, 
really try to avoid saying, okay, so this worked and this didn't. Uh, using a sort of, well, we know where the church is, but we don't know where she isn't type of attitude to things. Instead of saying, oh, here's the right answer and here's the wrong answer, say, well, I saw that we had these different approaches playing out. To me, based on these principles I see, I think that this approach is the better one, the one that would uh, help us to fulfill a greater range of those means of connecting us to the liturgy. Uh, so to focus on that, where should we steer? What should we strive to try to do our best based on these criteria, as opposed to saying, well, we found out what the minimum is, so let's just let's just go with that. Let's settle for marking out the minimum. It's, it's a novel concept, and one might argue that we should be doing that regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not, right? We should, we should be using that principle to be able to understand what we're doing in the liturgy anyway. Um, but my, my other question is, and you brought up a very good point because we talk about the primacy of the intellect, right? But there's a lot of situations where that can't be the case, and that's superseded by bodily or physical mm-hmm. needs, E.g., like I've had the same problem with, you know, having having kid, not just having to take a kid into the into the narthex, but just uh, kids wandering about in the pew and, you know, trying to make sure that they're paying attention as best they can, which distracts my attention. And then another example, and I've talked to this with a number of other people who do liturgical ministry, but let's say you're an MC or a cantor or whatever, mm-hmm. a lot of times, especially during the pandemic, where not only are you trying to prepare for your ministry, but you're also, is that person six feet apart? Is that person wearing a mask? You know, and all of a sudden, that's just taking your, your mind away from everything because of the bodily and the physical needs of what's mm-hmm. going on. So, so how do we mitigate those things? And, and how do we say, well, um, the Lord knows the situation that, that I'm in, and these are things that are required of me. So that will make up for my intellectual absence, right? right. How do we do that? Well, I, I think it's about striving for balance. You know, having said that the, the, the interior form of participation is the sort of primary one that gives meaning to all the rest, um, it simply can't exist in a vacuum. Uh, it has to be part of a participation of the whole person. And so if um, if we start to get scrupulous about, no, my, my only ways of participating in this liturgy are going to be the ones that allow me to direct my most complete and you know undivided, undistracted attention mentally to the rites going on, uh, we're going to sort of withdraw into ourselves as opposed to entering into this act of prayer with the entire church around us. And so, uh, you know, I think parenting is just a great lesson in doing that because, you know, I'm going to go to mass and I'm trying to balance various goods. Uh, you know, that the church doesn't say that we all have to take our young children to mass, but those of us who are trying for that are, are saying, I believe there's a great good in this person who is just as baptized and just as much a member of the body of Christ as I am coming. And according to how God has created them and invited them into his people, offering up their sacrifice of praise along with me. But I know that in trying to obtain that good, I am making trade-offs in order to try to sort of uh, realize 
as many goods together as possible, even though I won't be able to realize any individual one of them perfectly, most likely, until I'm a much greater saint than I am right now. That's the one thing that I try to you know, relate to people when they say, well, you're getting nitpicky and that's overly nuanced with, you know, liturgical rubrics and things like that. And my response is always, hey, it is hard enough to try to be a saint in the world today. Why would I make it any harder for myself? Because by doing those things and by doing as much as we can, liturgically speaking, we're giving ourselves more and more access to those graces. And so that's I like that because that's the logic that I use when I try to explain some of this stuff myself. My last question is about you being the director of an office of worship during a pandemic. And I've noticed that, you know, some people really like having mass online and they really enjoy that. And some people were really craving to be back in the church again in person. And I'm just curious, is are these some of these things that you've been seeing in your diocese? Is there tension there? Or what's what type of response are you getting? I mean, I, I think it's it's really hard to speak to generalities when it comes to people's experience of the liturgy and their, their paths back to in-person worship. Uh, and I think that's uh, one of the strengths of the, uh, the old moral tradition is that all, all of these principles that, that I would have deduced in my article or that are found more broadly within those manuals are designed to, to lay out general lines, but in doing so to equip confessors to take those general lines and apply them or help guide someone through a very specific situation. So um, there's intentionally a lot of freedom left in there or a lot of, well, here's this one view and here's this other view in order to be able to meet individuals precisely where they're at and to assess their situation. Uh, so um, as people are contemplating, you know, some some people have been back at mass in person for, for what, a year now. Uh, you know, once things opened up, they, they, they were the first ones back through the door and nothing's caused any further shutdowns and things have been wonderful. Others uh, have very specific concerns and um, uh, some people are, are still dispensed. And when folks reach out saying, sometimes here's why I haven't been back to mass yet. Uh, you know, it, is that a good reason? Is that not a good reason? For my position within the diocese, I say, well, I, I don't know you well enough to talk about your specific concerns. These are great things to take to your pastor. Uh, who who can talk through in much more detail than, than I can from some central office that that knows you on a much more longstanding basis and is able to to guide you through your specific situation with these tools that the church is giving us to to make our decisions. I've found that answer to be very nuanced, so I really appreciate that, and I think uh, it's consistent with you know what you've been saying in both in the article and this interview. So I really appreciate that, and it's always good to get the perspective of of somebody who's kind of seeing this from a larger uh, uh, viewpoint. So uh, so that's really great. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Aaron. We really appreciate the uh, article that you wrote. And if you want to read the article, we're going to put a link to the article uh, in the podcast episode, but you can also go to autoramus.org and find that. So Aaron, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.